Good morning and welcome. We continue to broadcast our services here in Bigger and Blackmount from the sitting room of the manse. But God willing, in two more Sundays, we will be back in the building in Bigger Kirk, where we will have a live congregation, but also continue to broadcast for this, our online congregation. You will have, hopefully, all received a letter explaining how the worship in the Kirk will happen, given all the restrictions that we are still under. Please do reply to the letter and let us know whether you would like to attend the services. As promised, this week we are moving on from our series where we were looking at the description of the early church that we find in Acts chapter 2 and where we were asking ourselves How might this describe our church in our time? If you didn't catch the whole series, do go back and look at the videos on our YouTube channel or listen to them on our podcast. But more importantly, can I invite you to continue to engage with God and me and others in the conversation about what the shape of our lives as individuals and as a church together, should look like as we go forward into a future that is unknown to us, but is most assuredly held in the palm of God's loving hand. Let's continue to look to God to lead us into the new normal. So this week we move on to a new series, a series based on the letter of Peter, the first letter of Peter. Since I've been in Bigger and Blackmount, we have yet to attempt looking at a letter in the New Testament in a systematic way. I've been prompted to look at the whole of 1 Peter for lots of reasons, and those reasons will come out in the course of our exploration of 1 Peter. But one important reason for looking at 1 Peter in a systematic way is that our friends at the Bible Project have produced two videos in their series on how to read the Bible. These latest videos are all about reading the letters of the New Testament. Later, I'll show you one of those videos to give you a taste, and you can access the other video for yourself for free online by following the link below. Before Tim and John at the Bible Project produce a video, they always spend hours in discussion, and some of that discussion they share with everyone else in a weekly podcast, which I follow every Monday morning. Well, when John and Tim were discussing this most recent series, John said that his experience of the letters was that the that the ministers in the churches where he worshipped would preach on one or two inspiring verses in the letters, but would never look at the message of the letters as a whole. And by doing that, they often missed out some really important things that God was trying to convey to the readers of the letters, both when they were originally written and to us who read them now. And when I heard that, I felt convicted 
that I have always done the same. I've always taken one or two verses from a letter and preached on those, but never looked the whole of the book or the letter. So what we are going to do for the next few weeks is by way of rectifying that. One Peter has a lot to say to us, and I am excited about how God may use it to both encourage and challenge us in the weeks to come. Let's worship God together as we prepare our hearts to hear from God this morning. Let's sing the hymn, Give Thanks. Let's approach God in prayer. Let's pray together. Creator God, we thank you that in your great love you know us better than we know ourselves. You know our needs better than we know them. And in your mercy you give us far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Thank you for giving us Jesus for giving him to die on the cross and rise again from death for us. Thank you that in having him, we need nothing else. But thank you that grace upon grace, you have given us so much besides. Thank you for placing us in families where we find love and connection. Thank you for sustaining us through the rough and the smooth. Thank you for the challenges that make us stronger as we learn to rely on you through them all. Thank you for quiet moments of contemplation and thank you for noisy celebrations. As you, Lord God, have welcomed us into your heart, we want to welcome you. We open our hearts to you now. Send your Holy Spirit to fill us now. In this time of praise and prayer and study of your word, we ask you to equip us to continue this journey begun in Jesus, that we might end with him as well. We pray now the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As I promised, let's now watch one of the Bible Project's videos on reading the New Testament epistles. Near the end of the Bible are 21 letters written to communities of Jesus' followers throughout the ancient Roman Empire. Letters? Like I'm reading someone's mail. Yeah. 
The letters are written by the apostles, that is, the people that Jesus appointed to spread the good news about his kingdom. And they wrote to Jesus' followers living in different cities around the Roman world. These letters were all written in a style called prose discourse. Now, if I'm reading a letter that wasn't written to me, then there's likely a lot of background information that's assumed but not mentioned. Yeah, exactly. And the letters in the Bible are no different. Okay, so let's talk about how to read the New Testament letters in historical context. So there are three levels of historical context to keep in mind when reading the New Testament letters. The first is how all the letters fit into the larger storyline of the scriptures. Right, so this story begins with God creating humanity as his partners to rule creation with him. But we choose to rule on our own terms, leading to violence, exile, and death. But God promises a guy named Abraham that life and blessing will spread to all nations through him and his descendants to renew God's vision for humanity. And Jesus said he came to bring that promise to its fulfillment through his life, death, and resurrection. Right, and so the apostles saw themselves as heralds announcing the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus. Like the apostle Paul. When he wrote to the house churches in Rome about the good news, he said his job was to summon people of all nations to give their allegiance to Jesus, the exalted king of the world. That's a bold thing to say to people living in the capital city of the Roman Empire whose allegiance is supposed to be to Caesar. Yeah, and that actually brings us to the second important context for understanding the New Testament letters, the culture of the Roman Empire in the first century. So Rome ruled all of these territories around the Mediterranean Sea. And they built their empire by conquering and enslaving their enemies and then imposing heavy taxes. The emperor and his small circle controlled all of the power and wealth, and they knew how to deal with people who threatened the social order. Most people lived without much money or stability. And Roman culture had a very clear hierarchy. Men from important families with money and education could move ahead in society. But women, slaves, children, and the poor were always at a disadvantage and treated as inferior. Yet, in a community of people who followed Jesus, everyone was treated with love and equal dignity. Yeah, in Roman life, it was unheard of for people of high status to associate with people below them. But the apostles said that through Jesus, God had given the gift of his love to everyone without regard to their status. So in that context, these letters were countercultural, and they broke down barriers between people. Exactly. And so that brings us to the last level of context, the situational context of each letter. You mean the specific issues in the church of a city that prompted the writing of the letter in the first place? Yeah, like Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. It's tempting to read this letter and focus on all the important theology and then overlook why he wrote this letter. Why did he write it? Well, towards the end, he talks about how Jewish food laws and sacred days have become controversial between Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. Which was creating divisions in the church. And if you read carefully, you can see that some Christians with higher social status were treating Jewish followers of Jesus with contempt. And Jewish Christians were returning the favor, condemning the non-Jews as second-rate followers of Jesus. Exactly. And so all of the ideas and theology in the first part of the letter were crafted to address those very problems. 
Paul acknowledges that the Roman Christians have big differences in culture, theology, and social status, but he wants them to realize that they are unified by their faith in Jesus, who is the real center of their church. Okay, great. But if that letter was written to someone else, then what should I get out of it? I mean, I don't live in ancient Rome. Well, in these letters, we see the apostles challenging and transforming every part of their first century culture and life with the good news about King Jesus. And by watching them, we gain wisdom about how that same good news can transform our culture as well. Now, there's one more helpful step to take in reading the New Testament letters, and that's learning how to follow the flow of thought from the letter's beginning all the way to its end. And that's what we'll look at next. Because 1 Peter is a letter, it is important to bear in mind that it has a unified message. Now, we don't have time to read the whole of the letter of 1 Peter this morning, but I would encourage you throughout this series to spend some time, at least once, maybe more, listening to the whole of the letter in one sitting. It's five chapters, and it will take 20 to 30 minutes. You can find a recording of David Suchet, Inspector Poirot, reading the whole of the letter on the Bible Gateway website. The link is below in the, the description of this video. Let's now read just a tiny portion of the first bit of 1 Peter. We read the greeting. 1 Peter, verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask you to open this book to our eyes and our hearts to your spirit, that we might understand it. This letter that was written to others in a different place and a different time, and yet written for us in our place and in our time. Help us to understand it and to continue to live for you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The letters of the New Testament follow the ancient Greek and Roman format for letters. They always began with a greeting. The greeting of First Peter is these two verses that I just read. In the greeting, the writer says who he or she is 
and to whom he or she is writing. It's easy to skip over the greeting, since it is part of a formula, but that would be to miss something. What the author does or doesn't say in the greeting can be highly significant. I don't think it's any different for us today. I was always taught to begin a letter with dear so-and-so, and I often do that. And every time I do, I think that it's a funny thing to do, but it's also kind of nice. It makes me think for a second that, yes, indeed, the person to whom I am writing is dear, that they are precious and important to God, and they should be for me as well. Even if the letter is a letter of complaint or I'm having a hard time with its recipient, I need to be reminded that they are dear. Let's look at the greeting here in 1 Peter, because it tells us some very important things about who wrote the letter, to whom it is written, and the purpose of the letter. So who wrote the first, the letter of First Peter? It tells us in the first six words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Scholars have debated whether this letter truly was written by Peter the Apostle, one of the twelve who walked with Jesus. Some scholars believe that because the Greek language in the letter is so sophisticated that it couldn't possibly be written by a Galilean fisherman. Well, the answer to that objection is that in Peter's day, Producing letters took a lot of time and effort, a lot more than they do today. The apostles didn't just pop off brief emails to people. They didn't write on paper, but they wrote on skin or papyrus. And those things were expensive. There was no postal system. Letters needed to be transported by hand. And because very few people could read or write, Letters were a collaborative effort. This letter was probably written not just by Peter, but by Peter and a group of friends. And they would have enlisted a professional letter writer called a scribe to help them. Because letters were so difficult to produce, time was given to getting it just right. And that would account for the style of the writing that we find in First Peter. Some scholars have other objections as to why Peter couldn't possibly have been the author. But I am inclined to believe that this was Peter the fisherman, who had been Jesus' friend, who is communicating to us here, with the help of collaborators, of course. Peter actually mentions his collaborators in chapter 5, where he signs off the letter. There he speaks of Silas, Mark, and an unnamed woman who are his collaborators. Peter, you remember him. He had a reputation for being impetuous. I like the way that A.W. Tozer describes Peter like a straight pen, pointed in one direction, 
but headed in another. Peter always had to be first, and he often was. He was, along with his brother Andrew, the first disciple. He was the first to call Jesus the Messiah. He was the first man, at least, to get to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. But Peter was also the first to be told off by Jesus, and Peter was also the first to deny Jesus on the night before the crucifixion. After the resurrection, Peter goes on to be the leader of the early church. At Pentecost, he stands up and preaches Jesus to an amazed crowd. And soon after that, Peter becomes known as the Apostle to the Jews, just as Paul became known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. Not long after the writing of this letter and Second Peter, Peter probably met his death by execution for believing in the Lord Jesus. If impetuous and, and imperfect Peter can go on to become a leader and a martyr, and the writer of such an encouraging letter as this, certainly there is hope for each of us. Later in the letter, Peter will make clear that our acceptance before God is not dependent on us always getting things right, but it is dependent solely on the grace of God shown us in Jesus. Certainly, impetuous and imperfect Peter knew all of that firsthand. Okay, so that is the writer. But who was this letter written to? In verse 1 it also says, To God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We can easily find these place names on an ancient map. The area mentioned is a massive area in present-day northern Turkey. This letter of First Peter is what is known as an encyclical letter. That means it was written not just to one recipient, not just to one church, but to many. The letter was meant to be read out in lots of churches in this vast area, and it was probably delivered by someone commissioned to read it aloud before the congregations of small house churches with instructions on how it was to be read. So that is where the recipients lived. But what else do we know about these people? Well, the letter itself gives us very, li gives very little away on that score. Some scholars suggest that these were Jewish Christians who resided in this remote area of the Roman Empire. Others suggest that these folks were Christians who had been expelled from Rome as some sort of punishment. I think the first theory makes better sense. If Peter is the apostle to the Jews, it would make sense that he would have some sort of responsibility for Jewish converts to Christianity who were living in far-flung places as well as those closer to home. 
the Jews living in these remote areas of the empire, were what are known as the diaspora, or the scattered ones. They were Jews who came to live in other places all over the known world after the Babylonian exile, and who never returned to live permanently in Palestine. And indeed, Peter here in verse 1 calls the recipients of his letter scattered exiles, the diaspora. And that brings us to our third point, the purpose of the letter. Assuming the recipients were Jewish Christian converts, they would have felt doubly alienated from the society in which they lived. Jews are renowned for carving out a, a distinctive community where they could belong even in the most hostile of places. But Jewish Christians would have been alien, alienated not only from the majority pagan culture in which they found themselves, but also from that close-knit Jewish community where they once had found their identity. There are indications that the folks to whom Peter was writing were being persecuted, not necessarily with torture or death, but certainly with humiliation and distrust on the part of both the Jewish and their pagan neighbors. Peter's purpose in this letter was to encourage these persecuted and beleaguered brothers and sisters with good news from God. The overarching theme of the letter is Christian hope in the midst of suffering. Peter's purpose was not just to give these recipients some consolation in their pain, but also to help them see that even in the midst of that pain, God had a plan and God could use them and their situation for their good and for God's glory. Peter here in verse 1 calls those to whom he writes the elect and chosen. This is what we call the doctrine of predestination or election. This doctrine can be pretty confusing. And sometimes when we speak of predestination or God's choosing, it can come across as pretty nasty and exclusive. But the context in which this doctrine often comes up in Scripture makes all the difference. And the present passage is a case in point. I got a Kindle Fire Stick for my birthday. So Jane and I have been watching TV shows on Amazon Prime. One show that we've been watching is called Star Girl. By and large, it is very silly, but it's a good way to turn off the brain at the end of the day. The gist of the story of Star Girl is that the superheroes of the Justice League of America have all been killed by the Injustice League. Until one day, a teenage girl discovers that she is the biological daughter of Starman and that she has inherited his superpowers. She sets out to recruit 
recruit other friends who also happen to have superpowers that they never knew about. These kids who become the new Justice League of America are the nerds who sit on their own in the lunch hall at school and who are often looked down upon and poked fun at by all the other kids. But by being chosen by Stargirl to join her in her mission to defeat the baddies gives this group of nerds a new sense of belonging and worth and they begin to flourish as superheroes in their own right. These folks to whom Peter was writing in his letter were being made to feel like the scum of the earth, doubly alienated as they were from both pagan society and their Jewish community. To hear from Peter, an apostle sent from Christ, that they were the elect, that they were chosen by God, the God of the universe from be- before the beginning of time, was an encouragement indeed, and just what they needed to hear. I'm not going to go into a long explanation of the doctrine of election just now. That will have to wait until we study the letter of Romans. But I just want to say that Doctrines such as this, vitally important as they are, are always explored in context in Scripture, and that can often make a huge difference to how they are understood. The God of the Bible is a God of compassion. He cares for the poor and the dispossessed. With this God, the outcast and the orphan find home. He chooses what others have thrown away. Those whom others will not choose, he embraces. This is the doctrine of election, and this doctrine makes glorious sense only if you are on the underside of life looking up. This Doctrine makes glorious sense only if, as Jesus says, you know your need for God. The greeting ends with what we might think of as a gruesome image. It says of these chosen people that they were chosen to be obedient to Christ and sprinkled with his blood sprinkled with his blood. What is that about? Well, if you know your Old Testament, as these diaspora Jews knew their Old Testament, you will know about the Day of Atonement, that one most holy day in the year when the people of God would gather at the temple. Sacrifices of bulls and goats would be made, and the high priest would take the blood from the sacrifices and sprinkle it on everything in the holy place, including the priests, purifying them so that they would continue to be a place where holy God could meet with people, guide them, and forgive them, and where people, unholy people, could meet with God, hear from him, and receive forgiveness. So what is Peter saying here? about the people who were receiving his letter and the sprinkling of 
blood. I think what Peter is saying is that they are a temple. Later in the letter, he will call them a holy nation of priests. These folks are a community built by God. A community built by God to be a bridge between God and the rest of humanity. Even those people who were looking down on them. Their election is not for their own sake, but for the sake of others. God chooses them so they might minister God's grace to others. And of course, the blood Peter refers to here is not the blood of goats and bulls. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that purifies not just once a year, and not just the people of Israel, but all those from every tribe and nation who know their need of God and who put their trust in Christ for eternity. Well, Peter has a great deal more to say, and I'm excited about exploring his letter. These two verses are a good place to start. In our place and time, we are not persecuted like the recipients of Peter's letter, by and large, or indeed as folks in other places around the world are persecuted today. But the message of First Peter is the same to us as it is to them. Like Peter's friends in northern Turkey, when we give our lives to Christ, we find at once that we are both strangers to the world around us, and citizens of another kingdom. There are inevitable tensions in living in this world, but belonging to another. Peter in the rest of the letter will show us that that is actually a good thing. It can be a creative tension. And it is this living in this world but belonging to another, that is the way that God is rescuing not only us, but the whole of the cosmos, which he created and which he loves. May God bless us as we continue this exploration of his holy word in these next few weeks. Amen. Let's now bring our prayers and petitions to a compassionate God. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for choosing us. We admit that your choosing has nothing to do with what we have achieved or how much better we are than anyone else. But your choosing has all to do with your unfailing love. Your unfailing love for the least and the lost. And Lord, we humbly count ourselves among those. And we give you thanks for your election. And with our thanks, we want to give you our all. Our hands, our feet, our heads, our hearts. Take these, Lord, and use them for your kingdom. On our own, Lord, we are but like the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. 
we are not worth very much. But with you and your spirit living inside us, there are no limits to what we can achieve and no limits to this life that you gift us. Lord God, your call is that we, all your people who know your unmerited grace, should be priests for our world, should be people who stand in the gap for those in need of your forgiveness and your great redeeming, renewing love. So together now we pray for our world. We pray for brothers and sisters in places where they suffer stigma, humiliation, and prejudice for being your followers. Lord, may they know that they belong first to you, that they are chosen by you, and because of that they also belong to us, to your worldwide family. May your presence sustain them, and your spirit empower them to bear witness to you even in their hardship. Give them that inexplicable, inexpressible and glorious joy that comes from you, even in the midst of their suffering. We pray for those in our community who feel lonely, despised for one reason or another, or rejected. Let them know that they too are ones whom you would choose to be part of your band of misfits and vagabonds, who by your grace and power working in them become kings and queens in your coming age. Help us to be welcoming of such folk. May your church in Bigger and Blackmount be full of such people. And may they feel at home and loved among us. In the silence now, we think of and name the most unlikely people we know. We ask you to speak to them and to us of your unfathomable love for them. We remember too all those who struggle at this time with low spirits or with illness. We name in the silence now all those known to us who are struggling. Rise, Lord, upon us and these for whom we pray. Rise as the morning sun. Push back the darkness and bring the dawn of your redemptive grace. Give hope in seeming hopeless situations, we pray. We lift these prayers along with our very selves to you, Lord God, 
In your wisdom and goodness, take what we offer and perfect it for your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.